Welcome everyone. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach of the ongoing telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, sponsored by the Peace Alliance. This series is a platform for education, connection, inspiration, and action, and we hope that you find it useful as you go about your great work in this field and beyond as a peace builder and activist, wherever your niche is in restorative justice and beyond. We thank you for your participation in this series. This archive in particular was a powerful conversation that we had on March 21st of 2013 with Dr. Evelyn Zellerer of Peace of the Circle, who is an international academic and advocate of restorative justice practices and who has written a new chapter for a book that's upcoming in the spring of 2013. Enjoy this archive and please be sure to visit her website at peaceofthecircle.com and also rj4all, that's rj, the number four, a-l-l, dot info. That's a great resource hub that she's been a part of creating. And also, finally, please feel free to visit us at dopeace, do, uh, excuse me, dopeace.us for all archives and upcoming guest speakers, as well as resources and events information in this extremely growing field, um, grassroots and international of restorative justice. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. You are participating in this week's edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise, a weekly free series sponsored by the Peace Alliance. And we're just delighted to have you here tonight. We have an, an incredibly interesting and compelling and um, powerful advocate and uh, academic in the field of restorative justice with us tonight. And I'll be introducing her in just one moment. Before I do that, I'd just like to welcome you to check out the archives of this series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. We have a very robust archive that is housed at dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. And the intention of this format on a weekly basis is to provide you, the participant and the, the collaborator here, a platform for education, inspiration, for taking action, and for connecting with other people doing such powerful work in this field and beyond. So it's an honor to be with you all tonight as co-participants of this council. And uh, again, encouraging you to check out the robust uh, library of archives at dopeace.us. Upcoming next week, we have Dr. Howard Zare, at a special time slot, Dr. Howard Zare, most of you probably are familiar with. We'll be talking with him at 1 p.m. Pacific time on the 28th of March. We also have some very exciting upcoming guests in April. You can check out the series schedule and get more information also on resources as well as upcoming related on-the-ground events in restorative justice, including conferences national as well as a few global links for events this summer and into the fall. So without further ado, I just want to go into saying a few words about Dr. Evelyn Zellerer, who is our guest tonight. She's the director of Peace of the Circle and also has played an active role in creating the extraordinarily useful um, web platform called rj4all, dot, and that's rj4all.net, and peaceofthecircle.com. She is uh, a PhD in criminology, a facilitator, trainer, and speaker, and she specializes, of course, in restorative justice, as well as peacemaking circles and conscious governance. Dr. Zellerer is founder and director of Peace of the Circle, an international organization that works with government, justice agencies, businesses, nonprofits, schools, as well as communities. 
And over the past 20 years, she has taught and led projects in diverse cultural contexts, including the Arctic, southern USA, Caribbean, South Africa, Australia, and the former Soviet Union. She is a professor at Quantum Polytechnic University and author of numerous journal articles and book chapters. She also blogs. And I'd like to make special mention tonight of a chapter that she has written for the upcoming book. Um, the, the chapter itself is called Realizing the Potential of Restorative Justice. And it's an incredible chapter included in the upcoming book, Reconstructing Restorative Justice Philosophy, Values, Norms, and Methods Reconsidered, edited by one of our series guests, Theo Gavrielides. And um, that'll be coming out very shortly. And, and uh, Evelyn and, and our council tonight, I'm sure, will be touching on the themes and the, the really powerful unpacking that she does around the transformation that we're amidst in this field. So without further ado, Evelyn, Dr. Zeller, welcome to Restorative Justice on the Rise. And if you could start out, please, by just telling us a little bit about your background and what brought you into this field and the work that you do presently. Welcome. Well, thank you. And wow, what an introduction. My goodness. Uh, thank you so much, Molly. It's truly a, a pleasure and an honor for me to be a, a featured guest tonight and uh, welcoming uh, everyone who's on this call or, or webcast. Um, wow, how did I get involved? Uh, I don't know when I was not involved. Um, I would have to say that this has been a lifelong journey of mine. I've always, always been interested in peacemaking. Um, I remember as a child, I, I kept wondering, why can't we just get along? You know, I was completely perplexed by war and apartheid. And as I grew, um, the question became, how do we get along? And, and uh, I would say that's been a guiding question over the years. Um, the journey led me to travel around the world and uh, ultimately to go into academics. And I, I got the PhD, as you mentioned, in CRIM. Um, and along the way, I've just been learning about the different responses to conflict. Uh, so criminal justice, Aboriginal justice, and I was introduced to restorative justice in the 1990s. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about that introduction, if you would, and, and what, um, what struck you about restorative justice and, and deepened your work in that field that brought mm -hmm. you to this point today? Well, at the time I was uh, doing some work in the Eastern Arctic and I was focusing on violence against women, uh, Inuit women in particular, and the criminal justice system was not working. Uh, that was very clear and I'd been uh, doing some other work in different Aboriginal communities and there was a lot of very clear failings. Um, and I honestly began as, as a, a bit of a, a, a skeptic of restorative justice in the mid-90s because I was so immersed in violence against women um, and there was a lot of different power dynamics um, within communities trying to, you know, do something different, a lot of victim blaming. And so I, I was really questioning, you know, how do we do this uh, in that kind of context? And so I was kind of known as a friendly critic, asking a lot of tough questions around power and race and violence. Um, and as I continued to explore, um, so again, I, I wasn't sort of a, I didn't immediately fall in love with RJ. I had to really look at it for a few years. And as I began to meet the founders and the pioneers of this contemporary movement, I was um, very touched. I felt like I, I found my home. Uh, I don't know if others on this call and, and yourself have been in conferences and gatherings of restorative justice practitioners and advocates it's a different kind of um, community. It's very welcoming, and people have a lot of heart and a lot of intelligence and a lot of thoughtfulness into humanity. And so I felt, wow, these are my people. So that was one thing that drew, it, drew me to it. But more importantly, I stepped back and really delved into what is restorative justice. And I spent a couple of years learning about it, and I realized this is absolutely what the world needs. Once I understood the vision of it, um, then I was absolutely an, an advocate 
And then I went back to practice. So about 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I then revisited, okay, now that I really understand what it is, how do we now do this in the world? And so I started to look at all the different practices, and I've never looked back. Well, that's a powerful story, Evelyn, and I just... um I'd, I'd really love to hear a little bit more, too, tonight um, to start out about the specifics of where you're at now in present time with Peace of the Circle and maybe a little bit, too, about RJ for All. You you really are on an international scope um, in what you offer to the field and, and to the growing awareness, um, certainly here in, in the North American continent, United States, and you're based out of Canada. Is that correct? Yes, I am. I'm based out of uh, Canada, and I get the uh, privilege of traveling um, the world. So I'm I'm very grateful for the work that I do. And and uh, again, I uh, you know continuing. I guess the story is I was looking at the different practices, and I um, was introduced to peacemaking circles uh, through Barry Stewart and Kay Pranis, uh, two of my mentors. And this was a practice that spoke to my heart, and I I felt that this is an incredible gift to the world. And if you're interested, we can talk about that a little later. So it, it led me to uh, deepen um, my understanding uh, as now a practitioner. So I had done quite a bit academically, uh, some research um, and speaking, and then uh, into the practice field. So then I became um, a facilitator and a, a trainer after that. And so for the last, I lose track of time, so I pause here. What is that, six, seven, eight, nine, ten <laughs> years? Oh, my gosh, it goes so quickly. Uh, I've been a practitioner and a trainer, and I just love it. I, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing, to be honest with you. And so that's what led me then uh, to set up my own consulting company, and that led to me forming Peace of the Circle and so offering services to, to really anybody who wants to have these authentic conversations because really we're talking about having those difficult conversations that need to take place. So I love the facilitating of those conversations and, and even more so empowering people to have the, the capacities, the skills, and the confidence uh, to do this work in their own organizations or communities. So I get to work with a wide variety of, of people, including um, you know businesses and government agencies, corrections, uh, schools, so it's just wonderful. Uh, you mentioned RJ for All. Uh, I certainly can't take credit. I'm, again, blessed that I get to be a part of this initiative. Uh, I really want to uh, acknowledge uh, Dr. Theo Gavrilides, who you mentioned a moment ago. He was a guest on your show a couple of weeks ago. He's based out of the UK, and his organization, ARIS, is uh, IARS, uh, Independent Academic Research Studies. It was really his brainchild, um, and he took the initiative. He's quite a visionary and uh, just, you know, launched this and then reached out and, and invited a number of us to be involved as partners to support this initiative. And it's wonderful because it's a free platform, and uh, the basic idea is to support, um, you know, other academics and practitioners and researchers and policymakers, anybody involved with restorative justice, to contribute and also to develop our collective knowledge. You know, we want to create uh, a little bit more understanding and consistency and, and hopefully more unity in the practice of it worldwide. So it's a, a wonderful platform. If people are interested, just go to rj4all.info, and that's rj and the number four, all.info. And mm. my own website, you know, if you're interested, you can take a look. It's peaceofthecircle.com. Wonderful, and and Evelyn, if you if you might speak of a of some of the specific examples of uh, if you have a story or a case example that you'd like to share tonight from your work with Peace of the Circle, uh, given that you've worked with so many diverse community sectors, schools, corrections, um, are you working with both adult and juveniles? You know, excuse me for even using that word juvenile. I think that. It's certainly a term that's widespread, but let me just say youth instead. 
Um, wow, good question. There's so many that are just flashing across my uh, my thoughts right now. I'm not and sure. And forgive which me for putting you on the spot, but it's always no, so interesting and powerful to hear, you know, case examples, yeah, if if possible. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm I'm more than happy to tell stories. I think stories are just so powerful, and it's one of the gifts of of our practice and restorative justice, and certainly with uh, peacemaking circles. It's just the invitation of stories. It's such a wonderful way to learn and connect with one another. Uh, I guess, you know, without uh, time to think, I, I would say a, a couple of things stand out, um, you know, uh, just in terms of part of my work is facilitating, and I was asked to facilitate um, an incident that had uh, happened. It was fairly serious with a team. Um, it's a workplace example with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And so, you know, it was interesting because it was um, a group that goes out on a boat, and so they're together for 28 days at a time. So you can imagine um, all kinds of things can, can be challenging when we have to work in close quarters. So I was very blessed. I, I did a, sort of the standard, there's nothing standard, but uh, the general approach is you, in, you individually connect with each participant, uh, you know, let them know what the process is, let them know who I am as a facilitator, uh, invite them to come. It's voluntary. Uh, everybody did come, and we had an amazing circle. Uh, and just connecting with values, and that's one of the the hallmarks of peacemaking circles is that we're very, very conscious about being value-based, and we invite people to uncover and connect with and choose to act according to their own shared values. Uh, and so in, in many groups, including this one um, and another one in the maximum security prison with guards comes to mind where there was a, a union grievance and this department came together. And in both cases, you know, after meeting in circle and talking about our values, and then we use a talking piece, another uh, hallmark of peacemaking circles that's unique is we use a talking piece that gets passed around the circle. It's, it's uh, a powerful, powerful um, tool, and it's, it equalizes the conversation. It invites all voices to be heard. There's a lot of heart speak. Again, I can talk more about that if you're interested uh, in the call. But in both cases, what, what strikes me is, is here we have situations where people are, are having a lot of um, dysfunction, a lot of pain, sometimes some violence, and when individuals are invited to remember who they authentically are and to connect with their values and then to have a safe space where they can have the difficult conversation that, that they were unable to have beforehand, that they can go to places that they didn't anticipate they would go, which is really um, the truth of what's happening and to be able to reach across to one another where they were just, you know, combatants earlier and didn't trust each other and uh, a lot of trauma and to be able to say what needs to be said in a good way and to be able to hear one another and then to resolve the matter at hand and then, you know, continue to work together. It's, I can't really express how wonderful it is to be able to be in a circle where you see what we call these magic moments. Um, most facilitators and practitioners will speak about this and we can't uh, articulate when or why or how it happens very well, but we know it does when we we uh, set up a good process and a good space. And to see people connect at a at a real deep human level um, in an authentic way, in a good way, it's just so beautiful. So that that's just a couple of small examples that spring to mind. And what is your experience with the idea that, or the criticism rather, perhaps, um, how do you see the criticism around restorative justice for, for many people who perhaps are new to the field and haven't seen it in actions and perhaps haven't participated in it, often say that it has no teeth? What would, what would your response be to that? Yeah, it's one of the most common criticisms, and, and actually it's, a, it's one of the most common myths. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, it's what people say, it's soft, soft on crime, it's soft on conflict. And, and I, I'm always talking about that when I do public speaking. I also you know, love to do speaking, and so it's one of the myths I like to, to talk about because it is so common. 
um, you know, it's, 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 as you know, it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. And I invite people to think about their own life and if they're having a conflict or if they have done something wrong, if they've harmed somebody or they've stolen something or committed fraud, you know, what would be the hardest thing for you to do? And inevitably, uh, I think we can agree, the vast majority of people would say, if not everybody, would be to, to actually face what you've done, which means sitting with the people that you've hurt and the, and the people that matter most to you, whether that's your family or your friends or your loved ones, and to really, really have to explain what happened and to be able to really listen to the impact that it's had um, there's nothing harder than that, um, and there's nothing more transformative than that. Mm. Beautifully said. It, it, it's such a common theme, too, in this series. Um, we, we like to look at some of the common threads for, from the many guests that we have from many different corners of our, of our world, and this certainly, as you said, is is one of the most common um, criticisms or misunderstandings perhaps that is really quite present right now. And of course, at, at some point here in a moment, we're going to go into this incredible chapter that you've written, again called Realizing the Potential of Restorative Justice. And you talk about a shift in, um, in, in worldview and in, in, in our system um, transforming from a particular paradigm to another one, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but I want to talk really quickly, too, about another important common theme that seems to really be bubbling right now, and that's the gathering of, of evidence and of data. Um, one of the things that's happening right now locally here in Colorado that the Peace Alliance is actually involved in and supporting is the advocacy of a House bill that's up for vote here in just a few weeks. Um, it's House Bill 13, uh, I believe, 0396, and it's called the Restorative Justice Pilot Project, and it's the second, if it passes, of, of uh, related to restorative justice and creating a program that, that will provide definitive evidence that many of us already know exists of the success and the savings and the recidivism drop um, in you know, in in these programs that are in place and working. So since you have such a robust international scope in your experience, what are you seeing right now? And can you direct people to places where they might find more information? Um, given that we are human beings, we seem to really need empirical evidence um, in order to to transform systems. And I know that that's another thing I want to talk to you about specific to your chapter as well. Yeah, very good question. Um, you know, I think that's something we need to do a better job of, all of us in the world, uh, is, is sharing the evidence that restorative justice works. We've had a lot of wonderful evidence over the last, uh, especially five, eight years. We've had quite, an, quite um, a dramatic increase in, in fabulous studies, but certainly we've been collecting research and evidence for, for at least 20 years now, more than 20 years. So we have a lot of studies, and um, the evidence is clear. It's really clear that, uh, generally speaking, now there's a lot of nuances, and, and for this call I won't get into it, because there's some sophisticated findings that are really interesting when we break it down to different crimes, but, but generally speaking, we are finding that restorative justice works. You know, it's, it's more cost-effective. Um, as you mentioned, recidivism rates are far, far better. The recidivism rates of the criminal justice system are awful, I mean, in North America, generally speaking, we're talking 70%, that's failure rate. So that means people are just coming back into the system and people in the system are well aware of, of what we've called the revolving door. You know, people are recommitting offenses. So, you know, it's not working to reduce crime. Uh, now, restorative justice has very, very good rates of, of uh, low recidivism we have high victim satisfaction, high community um, participation satisfaction. We have also evidence of, of victims being able to overcome 
uh, a lot of the trauma, so their healing is being supported, and so they're less likely to be afraid, for example, after restorative justice, same with the community members that participate. So there's a lot of um, wonderful evidence. Um, and there's some great control studies and some great national studies um, that people can certainly look at, absolutely. So I commend you for um, continuing to do that work in, in your own state. I think it's fabulous. Mm. And are there, are there places where you might direct people that you could think of for uh, particular reports that reflect kind of the you know, micro and macro level of of, of the kinds of, of evidence and statistical analyses that we might be looking for right now? Off the top of your head, yeah, anything yeah. out there? Oh, yeah, there's lots. Um, I'm just thinking of uh, there's a great report um, out of England um, that's available as a PDF. I know the a, a great site also out of the U.S. that's international is restorativejustice.org. Um, it's a wonderful um site uh, that has tons and tons of information in their database. So I would direct people to do, and it's searchable, so I, you, depending on what specifically you're looking for, I would go to restorativejustice.org. And of course, this new initiative that we're building is going to have a, a wealth of, of resources, um, including evidence and, and research, which is the rjforall.info site as well. And of course, I'm always happy if people have specific questions or they want me to send links to specific reports. Uh, then you're welcome to email me. The best way to contact me is just through my website at peaceofthecircle.com. You just send an email, and I'm happy to send links on anything we say during this call. I'm, I'm always happy to follow up with people and, and right. share what I know, of course. Thank you so much. And and at the RJ for All site, I know that there's many people who are, are deeply experienced and offering services within the field um, including academics and mediators and, and many others. Is this website available for people um, who might have papers and articles to submit those to to be uh, a part of its archive and library? Oh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And how would people do that? Um, if you just go to rjforall.info, there's all the links there and contributions. We also, you know, um, have established an international uh, internet journal for restorative justice, which is free and peer-reviewed. Uh, it, there's there's it's very user-friendly, and there's a, a site for the journal, and you can look at the editorial board. is very impressive. There's some some phenomenal people that are involved, uh, as I mentioned, spearheaded with. Uh, Theo and uh, you know John Braithwaite and Howard Zare and many people are involved as uh, supportive uh, participants. So yes, it's it's very much an invitation for for everyone to contribute and to be involved for sure. And one other one other piece that kind of ties into what's bubbling up and emergent and it seems on micro and macro levels is. Sort of uh, as you're as you're talking about this incredible resource at RJ for All, also the the need to identify who's doing what and where, and I wonder if you know of any place in in our fine World Wide Web that might demonstrate some sort of map, um, like a collective map for for the United States, for Canada, where we can actually go and find resources and connect with other people doing similar work. Is there something like that at RJ for All? Um, it's something that, again, there's so much, and you can imagine launching this site. It's only a couple of months old, so, you know, there's so much still coming. And that's one thing that we have mentioned uh, that I just wrote it down, because it's funny, it's, it's actually what I would love, and it's something I had, had mentioned to a variety of people before. So I'm, I'm with you. I think it would be awesome and I'm sure it can be developed there, absolutely. Um, and and I know for me, one of the, it's just a joy that I have. I love tracing practices and just following the lineages and following the people and just wanting to hear their stories. And there's just such richness in the world right now. Uh, and I think it would be absolutely fabulous to create a map and then to invite people to fill in the stories and to really honor the pioneers you know, I, I'm just thinking of, uh, you know, tracing back conferencing to family group conferencing in New Zealand and the first country to legislate it as 
people in the field know in 1989. And so that's a long history and, um, you know, peacemaking circles, tracing it back to the Yukon in the 1980s and Barry Stewart. And there's so many wonderful um, stories that are all interconnected. And as we share our practices across different jurisdictions and countries, there's just such a wealth of knowledge and experience and, and lessons that we've learned along the way. So, yes, mm-hmm. I concur we need it, and I don't – it's not up yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's up to all of us, right? <laughs> exactly. So I just want to take a pause for a moment, and, again, uh, it's great to have you all here with us tonight. I want to just remind you all that we're, we're speaking with the extraordinary Dr. Evelyn Zeller of Peace of the Circle and um, also of RJ for All, and she's an author – and uh, a blogger as well. And in this next half hour, I'd like to go more definitively into this chapter and what it entails. But before we do that, just a reminder, check out peaceofthecircle.com. That's all one word, peaceofthecircle.com, and also rjforall.info, I-N-F-O, is the site that we've been talking about, the resource hub. Now, one other thing would be to, just as a note, for the future of this series, we, we also are beginning to offer it on webcast. So please tell all your friends and networks and invite people to come in from um, across the globe because we're now offering this via the web, which is a great resource um, for people who may not be able to Skype or dial in to this series. And again, this is a weekly platform usually occurs 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and certainly warmly welcome you all to pass along the information about this series and bring people in to participate. And on that note, too, just a reminder, for the, the remainder of tonight's call, if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to bring into the mix, please simply press 1 on your telephone keypad. If you're on the webcast, you can submit that through the module on the webcast itself. So we'll be taking those, those questions and comments from here until the remainder, um, until the closing of our call tonight. Now, Evelyn, um, just going in now to realizing the potential of restorative justice, your chapter, I'd like to share with everyone the abstract of the chapter. It's very compelling. And you say, to fully realize the potential of restorative justice, we need to view it from a broader perspective, revisit its vision, and make conscious choices. In this chapter, I posit that humanity is evolving from what I call the separatist paradigm into the wholeness dimension. Restorative justice was born from the wholeness dimension, yet is mainly practiced in the separatist paradigm. I highlight some challenges this poses, including standardization and regulation. Restorative justice is poised to make a significant contribution to the broader paradigm shift occurring in the world. Shared values and values-based practices are powerful bridges for transformation, including the actualization of human rights. Peacemaking circles are offered as an exemplar. This chapter is ultimately an invitation. And so with that, can you reflect on some of the key principles that, that you go into so eloquently and so deeply here in this chapter? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, this chapter, it's um, in a forthcoming book. It's, it's not yet uh, released. It's due to be released in, in July this summer. So uh, stay tuned. And, and uh, it was quite a journey writing it, I have to say. I, I mentioned earlier in the call that when I first was learning about restorative justice, I, I really did a deep dive into learning what it is. Um, and I guess that was somewhere around 1999, 2000. And, and, and this chapter represents the same thing, sort of whatever that is, 13, 14 years later. Um, it was time to really look again. And I wanted to look at what the vision is because, you know, we've had over 30 years now of, of development and practice and, and sort of an explosion in the last 10 years or 15 years uh, around the world. It's now a global movement. It's been endorsed by the United Nations, and, um, you know, it, it's fabulous. 
And there's also some concerns um, that I share with, with, with some others in the field, of course. So in this chapter, I, I wanted to get really clear about what is the vision of restorative justice. Let me step back again myself and get really clear about, okay, what is the vision and what is its contribution and what are the challenges that we're facing? And more importantly for me always, as, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call in my own life journey, is, is how do we realize this? How do we actually do this? I've discovered I'm quite a practical person. I, I you know, I, I read ferociously, but I'm, I'm ultimately pragmatic. You know, I, I want to make a difference in the world, and I think the sort of justice represents that. So in a nutshell, and again, I'll let you, I'll just sort of maybe speak briefly and then let you ask specific questions, um, but generally speaking, what I say here in this chapter is that there's a paradigm shift in the world going on right now, and many of us are, are aware of this, and uh, I call the current paradigm, what we're operating in now, the separatist paradigm. So this is the ordered, hierarchical, linear world, and there's a lot of um, dichotomous thinking and disconnection and, and justified violence. Um, so this brings us to the Hobbesian view, for those of you who are interested in, in literature and academics. You know, it's that solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, short life that he uh, so famously talked about. And this is where the criminal justice system was born out of. And I, I describe that in the chapter. And there's something else that's very possible. And this is this global shift in consciousness. And I call this the wholeness dimension. And uh, again, I describe that. But this is where we recognize that we're deeply interconnected and interdependent. There is no us and them. And it is just us. And, you know, what we do to others, we do to ourselves. Um, this is our, you know, our core humanity. And there's many leaders that exemplify this. You know, for example, of course, Martin Luther King and Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Dalai Lama, many more. And I, I believe that restorative justice was born out of that dimension, that level of consciousness about our deep interconnectedness. And so... Now, I see that restorative justice is, is facing a choice, is that we de facto have to operate within a separatist paradigm. You know, we're engaged with the criminal justice system, we're engaged with the hierarchies, whether it's in government or business or in justice, um, even in schools, where we have this punishment mentality and the get tough mentality and the discipline, so we got to take our kids and suspend them or expel them, for example, or, you know, we have to, you know, go through the hierarchies, the chain of command in the businesses or in the justice system of, you know, we have to punish them so they learn their lesson and um, we seek our revenge. So all of these structures are all within that, this, this paradigm that I articulate in terms of separatists. And so we're engaged in that, in the work, and we've sort of done a deep dive. And as I said, there's been this explosion of, of restorative justice and restorative practices, but operating within these systems and these hierarchies. So we have to be careful that we don't lose our way. And for me, what the greater contribution is and the greater calling and vision of restorative justice is to guide us and lead us and support us in, in a greater consciousness of how we can be in the world. So it would be a shame if we got co-opted. And there's many examples of that. So this is a very real possibility where we start tinkering a little bit, but we lose our way because it's so all-pervasive. And so we might make some changes, which are very wonderful, um, and in my perspective, not enough. And so I look at the deeper possibility of transformation, and that's where I'm really interested in playing, um, in the deeper transformative work that we have before us, uh, into this greater consciousness. And, and that's my excitement, and that's where I play, and I'm excited that there's so many of us in the world that are playing here and really inviting others to a whole other level of consciousness and a whole other understanding of what is conflict and what is crime, you know, beyond all the right and wrong and the good and bad, the us and them. Um, that's all something we've constructed, and I don't think it serves us anymore. 
So I, I go into that in, in this chapter. So uh, maybe I'll pause and see what uh, questions you might have or if other mm-hmm. questions from the audience are coming up. Mm-hmm. Great. Right, and just reminding everyone, press 1 on your keypad if you have a question or a comment tonight. I certainly have a question. Um, I'd like to, to focus a little bit more on the piece that you touched on a bit, uh, maybe get a little bit more ground level with it, and that's the one um, about the challenges that are we're facing here with restorative justice, and you say including standardization and regulation. Um, what what are some spe- some of the specific things that that restorative justice is facing right now as it's perched to really um, go into a, perhaps a tipping point phase, if not already, in systemic transformation? As as we see so many programs popping up all over the United States and certainly um, way beyond just this this continent. Yeah, it's a very good question, and it's something that's very, very relevant and important and and completely current. Um, You know, we've been having a global conversation around standards and regulation, and there's a lot of different viewpoints out there, so we do not have a consensus on this at all. And it's a very important conversation that we need to continue having, and I invite us to keep asking questions um, and be as conscious as we can as we move forward. So some jurisdictions in the world are choosing to move towards or completely adopt a more standardized, regulated um, approach to restorative justice. And that makes me nervous um, because it's state-regulated, state-controlled, and standardized. Um, And I think this doesn't align with the heart of restorative justice and as I mentioned a moment ago the the whole potential of what restorative justice could be from a broader uh, consciousness. Um, I appreciate why we do need guidance and clarity. Uh, There's unfortunately some very harmful practices that have occurred under the umbrella of restorative justice. So some people are saying we're doing restorative justice and um, you know, and then they have somebody wearing a T-shirt where saying theft, you know, I'm a thief, uh, which is a real case. And, you know, that's not what restorative justice is. So we have to be very mindful and very careful, and we do need to prevent um, these doing more harm through the guise of restorative justice. So I'm not against, you know, guidelines and, and clarity. Uh, but we've only just begun. I mean, although I've said we've been in the field for 30 years, you know, the other way to look at that, we've only been doing this for, you know, 30 years. So, and, and it's only been introduced to many jurisdictions only recently, only a few years now. And, and so many jurisdictions in the world do not yet have restorative justice at all. And so we are still pioneers. And I would like us to remember that and to have that curiosity that comes with being a pioneer. And the pioneers that have come before us were willing to do very radical, different things. And at the time, they were, you know, <laughs> uh, considered, you know, even crazy. I'm just thinking of, you know, my colleague and friend, Barry Stewart. He's the retired judge. He was um, the chief territorial judge in the Yukon. And he described to me, you know, in the 80s when he, and the 90s when he, took off his robes as a role, uh, as a judge and he stepped off the bench and he invited the, the community and the justice officials to sit in a circle and to talk about, you know, how can we sentence differently? He's a judge and like many justice professionals, they recognize firsthand, you know, the limitations and the challenges and the, the, the failures of their justice system. So he was one of them, but he had as a pioneer um, the courage to say, I'm just going to do something completely different. They thought he was crazy. <laughs> um, and, you know, how can a judge take off their robe, sit in a circle and pull out a feather and talk to everybody and, and come to a consensus about how do we sentence this person? Barry knew that we couldn't just tinker with it. We needed to do something radically different. And, you know, ultimately, long story short, he ended up setting legal precedent in Canada, uh, created what became termed sentencing circles, and then went on to a broader practice of peacemaking circles. So if we standardize and regulate too much, we will not allow these 
so-called radical creative ways anymore because we will have said this is what it has to look like. Well, we don't know what it has to look like. Um, and more to the point, and in addition to that, I, I would say the justice system forces all parties and all conflicts and all crimes into a particular process. Restorative justice is meant to create a process to fit the parties and the context. So it's very different. It's not about forcing parties into any process. And if we standardize and regulate too much, then we're just going to be doing what the justice system is. We're going to be setting out this generic model potentially. It's a potential where everybody has to fit into this process. We don't want generic. We want the creative, um, the collaborative, the innovative. We are inviting people involved in a conflict to develop what would work for them and to empower them to resolve their own conflicts. And so I'm concerned about that, and, and I'm reminded of a, another famous article, Niels Christie, who talked about how the state stole conflict. And there's some interesting historical articles. Um, you know, we used to do a lot of practices that are termed restorative justice, could be called restorative justice. Um, and the state came and said, no, it's now my conflict, and it's the crime against the state. Well, we don't want the governments to steal conflict again from us, even under restorative justice. So it has to be community-based, in other words. It has to be culturally appropriate. We want individuals to feel empowered that it's their conflict. It's not the government. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's who's ever involved. And mm-hmm. we want to be supportive of them moving through it to come to a good resolution. Anyways, that was fairly long-winded. <laughs> no, that's great, it's though, and it's topic. leading... That 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 really fleshes it out, and um, it leads me, and the I think the conversation is going in this direction that where what are the specific actions, um, if if any, that you might suggest that we can participate in as a body of collective uh, practitioners, academics, people in this field. What what can we do to prevent? the standardization, the, um, you know, the hijacking, perhaps, of the essence of restorative justice. How, how, does, how is that going to work? Well, I think... Or you know, is I, it I perhaps wanna... already working? Uh, what's already working, sorry? Are there things that you're seeing that um, examples of, of on-the-ground actions, um, ways in which we can, can affect the prevention of the hijacking, perhaps, per se, of restorative sure. justice by the, the, the um, uh, yeah, punitive absolutely. systems. What, what oh, are those yeah, things? Absolutely. And, and I, I just I, I want to, um, you know, acknowledge you, Molly, because even these calls is, is part of it, you know, and I just want to thank you because you, you offer this, you know, wonderful gift to, you know, the world. Um, you know, and, it, and it's free, uh, it's accessible, and so, you know, having these kinds of conversations is, is part of it. So thank you so much for all of the work and contributions that you are doing um, and uh, through your series and also the Peace Alliance. So part of it is, is we need to have conversations. You know, we need to um, listen to one another. We need to have, you know, basically walk our own talk. So we need to get clear about what is the vision of restorative justice, what are we trying to um, achieve here. There's, um, you know, a lot of diversity. Okay, let's sit down and work through this. Uh, I I recommend that we have various levels. So locally, uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, restorative justice in Colorado, for example. So local communities need to get together and have um, collaboratives and have these conversations and have as much awareness as possible. Make sure people understand what restorative justice is. We still bump into a lot of mythologies. You talked about earlier in the call, you know, this idea of soft on crime. People don't really know what it is. It, 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 we need to continue those conversations of education. And then regionally, we have to develop regional bodies. Uh, so then we reach across different programs and across different jurisdictions in our own region. And then we need also statewide, province-wide um, organizations so that we can have conferences and gatherings and, and 
connect across all of the jurisdictions in our state and province and then nationally, so the U.S., Canada, you know, et cetera, we need to have national bodies. Uh, Canada just formed its national consortium. Uh, and then international, so things like restorativejustice.org and what we were talking about, RJ for All, you know, having international gatherings and conferences. So sharing our insights, sharing our challenges, our concerns, listening to one another, and then developing some core clarity. And I know various jurisdictions have done that as well. So for example, uh, New Zealand comes to mind. Um, they created their, their group and they spent two years looking at do they want to have standards. And after two years of a, a real deep dive, and it's not necessarily quick, right? We need to take our time here and do this well. They came to the conclusion that they didn't want you know, this um, standardization, they wanted guidelines. And so on the ministry website, again, if you can't find it, callers are welcome to email me, um, but they have their guidelines publicly available. You can download them. So that's an example of you know, people who are willing to do the, the work necessary to get clear and then to bridge across the diverse opinions and thoughts and then come to a consensus. And I don't recommend majority votes. <laughs> we need to do the hard work of consensus. Um, and, you know, to be aware and to know that we don't have the answers right now. We have some answers. We have some insights. But, oh, my gosh, we've only begun. We need to be open-minded and ask the questions and get curious. And as we evolve and expand our consciousness, then we can know even more. But don't come to conclusions right now. Um, you know, it's just too much more to be developed it's a journey. Mm. I remember in our conversation with Kay Pranis, <clears throat> um, who is one of the deep pioneers of the what might be called the modern restorative justice field, um, had mentioned something that seems to be really important, and it ties into what you just said. Curiosity is so important and openness. And yet, at the same time, a remembrance that this this field is something that seems to be a natural inherent aspect of our humanity and and what it points to within us our need to be understood our need to be heard and to hear to listen deeply to um create a safe space to share truth and you were pointing to some of the unexpected and and certainly maybe even surprising and inspiring moments that can come, although they're not a, an ends to a means or a means to an ends of restorative justice, but there's something that can go much further with this field than with the old form of justice, it appears. So I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Could so I just want to, I, I, I just like, I know we're getting close to our closing tonight. We still have quite a bit of time left for live questions, but we're also getting a few from the webcast. I'd like to, to just pick up a question here from Sean, and he asks, how will restorative justice practices affect the criminal justice system and specifically the role of the police, attorneys, and court and correctional officers? And I just want to point out that we had a powerful conversation just a couple of weeks ago with a police officer named Greg Ruprecht from the Longmont Police Department here in Colorado. And it was a powerful conversation of, of him sharing his experience, not unlike you, Evelyn, of initial skepticism of restorative justice and then moving into seeing the proof in the pudding, being a circle facilitator himself and the waves of skepticism that came up for him that uh, eventually were re removed and dissolved, and in their place, a strong advocacy and understanding of the, the great cost savings, like projected savings of restorative justice circles and practices. And um, perhaps he's a part of one of the, the, the most powerful example programs here, in, uh, certainly in Colorado, and perhaps in the United States, although I know that there are many others. So I just um, just getting back to, to Sean's question, if you would, please. 
Yeah, great question. Thank you so much, Sean, for that. Uh, I love that people can ask questions. It's my favorite part. Um, yes, we do need to work with the criminal justice system as we do need to work with governments and, and business leaders. So uh, absolutely there's a role to play in that. And, and I think your main question was how could it, how is it going to affect it? Uh, that's a wonderful thing for us to, to explore. I, you mentioned, for example, the police. I love working with the police. They're, they're unique and, and have a very important role, I think, in restorative justice because they're both members of the criminal justice system and they're also members of the community. And so there's uh, some wonderful examples of police being involved with restorative justice in a variety of ways. Um, you know, and, and one of the pioneers, as, as we've been talking about pioneers this call, um, you know, Terry O'Connell out of Australia, how many years ago in the early 90s, after visiting New Zealand, you know, brought the idea of conferencing to his jurisdiction, Wagga Wagga, and created, ended up creating the scripted model of conferencing that's now uh, being uh, exported and imported around the world in various jurisdictions. So the police have a wonderful role, and uh, I think it's a natural fit. I don't think police recognize that necessarily right away, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the example that you had with the officer recently on the call. I encourage people to listen to that, and he has a great video. Um, but there, it's a totally natural fit because they're on the front lines. They need restorative justice as one of their options in terms of responding. Um, it's very powerful for the officers. My, my dream is for every officer in the world to be trained in restorative justice as part of their training. So I don't see any, any issue there. It's just an expansion uh, of their own um, work, really. And I think they would um, really benefit from it and the communities would benefit of, from the police being restorative. I think the most challenging one of the three areas you mentioned is the lawyers. Uh, and it's interesting to me that I, I, we don't often see lawyers coming to the table. And I think this is where we need to spend some time um, really looking at, okay, what could their role be? Because in most of our restorative practices, it's not necessary to have lawyers present. Uh, and we're certainly not in an adversarial battle. So I think we need to look at, you know, what could their role be? Um, now, there'll always be the need for lawyers in terms of due process and the court system. It's not about taking the courts away. Uh, it's about recognizing the role of the court, which is for when people say, I, I didn't do it, they have rights for due process, or if somebody wants to set constitutional precedent, for example, then they need to go to courts to do that. So, you know, that's their jurisdiction. Um, briefly, because we're running out of time with corrections, uh, you know, there's diverse views. Some people are abolitionists. Uh, personally, I think we, we still need facilities for people who, the way I phrase it, who, based on their behavior, are choosing not to be in my community anymore for very, um, you know, harmful, violent, when it's unsafe. But I'd like to see prisons becoming restorative. And so uh, I'm just thinking of the example, I'm, I'm blanking on which northern European country it is, maybe Molly, you know, um, a video was, was done, I think it was, was it Norway, mm -hmm. <laughs> Netherlands? It was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's different examples of how we can incarcerate. So I think, again, having that invitation and conversations of how can we work with prisons, and, and I, I did some work in a maximum security prison, which was a really tough place. Um, to develop restorative justice as um, an infrastructure to deal with conflict and crime, both among staff and um, inmates. Now, Minnesota has done a lot. If you want to follow up with that, if people are interested, I'd recommend looking at Minnesota. They've done a lot. I know Kate Prentice was the first position in corrections as a restorative justice um, position. So there's examples in the world of um, restorative justice being done in various ways within correction. So uh, again, a longer conversation, but I'll pause there to see if there's other questions. Mm -hmm. Another another key figure in this department would be Sunny Schwartz out of San Francisco, and she will be our guest in a couple weeks. And um, I believe she'll be with us on April 11th. And so, and she's she's one of the pioneers and. Um, has created an incredible program within the law enforcement systems in that in the city of San Francisco and beyond. 
Um, I'd like to open it up. We have a, a question from our participatory circle here. Tonya, welcome. You're live. Hi, Molly. Thank you. Mr. Zeller, thank you for being here. I, currently, our community has a juvenile restorative justice program, and it's expanded to three divisions. And I was wondering if um, there are measurable results in the health and wellness of the people that are involved, and if so, where I could find that data. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not quite, it, it's, uh, the line was not so clear. Uh, I got that you have a program and it's expanded, and are you asking for data or how to collect data, or I didn't quite catch the question. If you have data, where, where would I find the health and wellness improvement of the people that are involved in restorative justice? And, and if there isn't data on that, where, where could I find that? How do I okay, collect yeah. that? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm noticing we're running out of time, so if you want to email me, I can, um, you know, send you some information. I, I was directing people earlier to two uh, international websites which you can search. One is restorativejustice.org, and the other one is rj4, the number four all dot info. Um, that's still developing, so more will be coming forward on evidence. But there is a number of um, uh, reports and uh, research. I'm sort of blanking on one to send people. I'm not sure why because <laughs> there's just like a uh, file full. Um, but I'm blanking on one in particular to send you. But there's a lot of wonderful articles and reports um, in the journals and, and in books and um, on websites around collecting evidence and the results of that. So, and there's a lot of discussion about how we should collect evidence. So, you know, it's not only statistics, it's a combination of quantitative and, and very importantly qualitative. So doing surveys is one thing, doing interviews, pre and post tests, uh, there's a variety of things that we can do. Being mindful, again, of restorative justice, and I love that you said the health and well-being, um, because so much of this we, we won't capture in numbers, and we're not meant to. So I'm pause there. Thank you. Mm, I hope thank that's you helpful. For, <laughs> and thank you for your question, Tonya. And uh, so with that, we come to a close of this evening's council. And it's just been a great pleasure to have you with us tonight, Evelyn. And again, uh, there's been a few people webcasting in about the exact website info. So I'm just going to recount that one more time, especially for restorative justice for all which has come up quite a bit tonight. That's RJ, the number four, A-L-L, dot info, RJ, four, all, dot info. And then also, of course, peaceofthecircle.com is Evelyn's direct web website. And she did mention, of course, to invite you if you have questions and would like to stay in touch with her about any of, of the issues that have been covered tonight please email her through that website. Do you have any closing comments tonight before we uh, have a few announcements and, and then go offline, Evelyn? I just want to say thank you. Uh, you know, so many of these topics were so big, I'm, I'm sure I just went on and on and missed so much more of what I would like to say, but it's been an absolute pleasure. It's a, uh, a, I'm just grateful to be a part of this global community and thank you everyone for listening and uh, I hope that we'll stay connected and hopefully I will meet you somewhere in person in the near future. So thank you again, Molly. Mm, thank you. And one more quick bit. When will we get to see this great book that has this chapter? <laughs> Do you have any ideas yes. on that? Uh, yeah, it's uh, scheduled to be released in July this summer, so a couple more months. And okay, again, so any beyond, questions, you know, be on the lookout then. The book's title is Reconstructing Restorative Justice Philosophy, Values, Norms, and Methods Reconsidered, and it's edited by Theo Gavrielides and um, another also, gentleman, uh, I think. What, how do you pronounce yeah, his uh, name? It's her, actually. She's uh, she, another me. fabulous, uh, amazing... Um, Professor, it's Vaso Artinopoulos. She's out of Greece. Uh, she, you know, co-edited the book, and also they were both co, 
um, organizers of the amazing first um, international symposium on restorative justice and human rights that was held last year in Greece. So both of these individuals are just phenomenal people to, to keep an eye out and keep in touch with. As are you. Thank, Thank you so you. much again for your time tonight. And and um, we'll look forward to staying in close touch with you and your body of work and so appreciative of the international scope that you provide in this field. And uh, just want to say thank you to all the participants, whether you webcasted in tonight or dialed or Skyped in. We will continue to offer the webcast opportunity, um, certainly especially for next week with our webcast with Dr. Howard there. That telecouncil and webcast is going to be at a special time slot. Again, that's next Thursday, March 28th at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Join us live here in the telecouncil room or by webcast. And go to dopeace.us to find out more about this series. Click on the Restorative Justice tab. You'll see a drop-down menu that also has archives and information about upcoming guests as well as conferences um, in North America and beyond. And also just a quick mention that the Peace Alliance is supporting an action around the House bill here in Colorado. So look out for an email about that House bill action to support the passage of it here in Colorado. It's championed by Representative Pete Lee, and the Peace Alliance is partnering with the Longmont Community Justice Partnership, with Pete Lee himself, and with uh, Officer Greg Ruprecht, whom I mentioned on this call, as well as other sponsors of this bill. And it needs your support in order for it to safely pass and become a bill that uh, provides a program that's deeply needed to create even more opportunities for evidence and empirical, um, practical statistics that, that provide an even deeper template, perhaps not just for Colorado, but for other states and beyond. So again, thank you for your, your being here with us tonight. We look forward to seeing you in the future. And again, thank you to Dr. Evelyn Zeller. Good night, everyone.